Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, this podcast is focused mostly on cetaceans, meaning whales and dolphins, ocean-related topics, and endangered animals. My name is Erica Worth. I'm your host here. I started this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer up in the San Juan Islands in the habitat of the southern resident killer whales. The first two years of this podcast focused specifically on that group of whales. I interviewed a variety of people from various backgrounds in regards to issues with that specific species. So if you're interested in learning about them, go back to our first two years worth of episodes. We are now here in season four and we are expanding a bit. So now we cover all kinds of topics. If you're interested in being on the podcast or you have a topic or a paper that you would like to have covered send us an email or a message on Instagram, something like that. My email is erica at breachingextinction.com. That's Erica with a C and breaching extinction. I hope you guys enjoy this week's episode and we'll just get to it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. This week, I am here with Nicole uh, Danaher Garcia. How are you doing today, Nicole? Great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well, just enjoying the sunny afternoon. Um, awesome. So we are here to talk about a recent publication that uh, you just did. And but first, I'd like to get to know you a little bit. So tell me about you. Where are you from? How did you develop an interest in cetaceans? Um, would love to learn about you. Sure. Yeah. So I'm from Connecticut, and uh, that's actually where I found my inspiration to study dolphins. I've always loved animals and dolphins specifically, but when I was 11, I went to the Boston Aquarium and they have that giant Omni theater thing. And they had a video about dolphins and it was focused on this woman who studied dolphins underwater and she had this fancy camera and I learned all about her. And after that, I told people not that I wanted to study dolphins when I grew up, but that I wanted to be her. So that kind of carried me through school and college and everything. And then I started an internship at Mystic Aquarium in Connecticut right after graduating. And I picked up a book about dolphins just to like keep in the academic world. And in the introduction, she mentioned Mystic Aquarium. And it turned out that it was the same woman who I saw in that movie when I was 11. So I went to my supervisor because she had said mystic. So I was like, do you know this person? Have you ever worked with her? And she said, yep, actually, she still lives in town. Here's her email address. You should just try reaching out to her. So I did. And I started volunteering with the Dolphin Communication Project. And that woman was Dr. Kathleen Dodzinski, who is the director and founder of DCP. Um, and then after a year of volunteering in the office, so I would drive like an hour and a half down to Stonington, Connecticut 
to help her review videos and like log data and stuff. Um, then I applied for the field internship and in 2013 did my first summer in the Bahamas studying the Atlantic spotted dolphins there. And the rest is history. <laughs> the next year, my field supervisor needed help running a field course. And obviously I said yes. And after that, she enjoyed working with me so much that we've been doing it every year since, except for 2020, obviously. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so are you still based in Connecticut then? I'm actually in Massachusetts. So after doing a few internships, I went to the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth mm -hmm. and got my PhD with Dr. Richard Connor. And mm -hmm. now I live outside of Worcester, which nobody knows where that is. But <laughs> yeah, I'm so I'm in Massachusetts. For sure. Um, so what is your current title now and what organizations are you affiliated with now? Um, so I am a research associate with the Dolphin Communication Project. I'm a postdoctoral associate at Florida International University with um, Michael Heithouse is my PI. And also I'm an assistant professor at, get ready for it, the Massachusetts General Hospitals Institute of Health Professions. So that one seems a little random, but with my dissertation, I had to do a lot of quantitative stuff that was like really outside the box. So I teach quantitative methods to people who are gonna go into health professions. Okay, wow, that's really cool. We love a little bit of interdisciplinary work there. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so we are here to talk about your paper, the partial merger of two dolphin societies. So, um, tell us about this study, what your original research question was, and we can get into methods after that. Sure. Um, so when I started in the field with DCP in 2013, um, I first was interested in the social relationship. So associations between dolphins, like how much time they spend together in a group. And I noticed like different patterns that if you saw one dolphin, like split jaw, you almost always saw another Prince William with him. Um, so that was what inspired me to go to grad school. But it was the first year that I was there. I was on the bridge of the boat and or I was on the bow of the boat and my supervisor was on the bridge taking notes, waiting for me to call up the IDs that I recognized. And I didn't recognize a single dolphin. And yes, it was my first summer there, but they didn't just not look like someone that I already knew. They just didn't look right. There was something about them that was different. So at first it took a couple of years for us to really get a handle on what was going on. Um, but we kept pictures and videos of these dolphins that we didn't know, um, just kind of in like temporary ID folders so that we could re-identify them from one year to the next. And finally, we were able to confirm that they came from a different part of the Bahamas and that it was this big group of dolphins that kind of came all at once. So that was what inspired the research question. You'd think having a big inundation of new individuals is gonna alter the social dynamics of the existing group so I wanted to see what happened. It was kind of a natural experiment that we were lucky enough to record. For sure. So these were the same species of dolphins, just individual or different groups or ecotypes? 
Yeah, so they're just different populations, maybe not even distinct enough to be called different populations, but they are distinct groups and they're separated by a really deep channel. Um, and they have to, they'd have to go around a, an island and spend more time in unsafe deep water. So they've never mixed. The, there are researchers who have studied the dolphins that came down. So they're north of where we study dolphins. Um, there are people who have been studying the Atlantic spotted dolphins there for about 30 years. And they have never seen strange dolphins. I mean, you occasionally will see like an adult that you don't recognize, but it happens very infrequently. And it's usually like, because that dolphin doesn't come close to the humans enough for us to take pictures or, you know, it's not unusual for one or two individuals to move between groups. But as far as we had evidence of, those dolphins had never been around our dolphins. So they are a distinct group, not a di different ecotype or anything, but same species. Yeah, they are a little bit busy, physically different. Like the, there's something about their spot patterns as they get older. So I guess I should back up. Spotted dolphins are born without spots um, and they start to develop spots right around the time that they become independent from their mother. And it's at that point that we're able to start identifying them unless they had some injury or something because their spots are unique to the individual. It's kind of like our fingerprints, except that our fingerprints stay the same our whole life, but the spot patterns, they increase the number of spots as they get older, but the pattern stays the same. So if you get pictures every single year, you can track how the pattern changes. Um, so the way that our Bimini spotted dolphins develop patterns is a little bit different from what we, we see for the adults from White Sand Ridge. That's the other group. Okay. Very interesting. Um, do you have any theories as to why it's different or is it kind of just like how in humans or anything else, things just kind of naturally occur differently in different groups? Yeah, I think it's simply that they've been separate, separated long enough that they've just kind of been genetically different. Um, I can't imagine, like, I can't think of anything in particular that would cause a difference. We also don't really know for sure what the purpose. Um, it wasn't deleterious, so they just kept it. But it, there's also theories that it allows them to recognize ages. So like, you don't have to. Um, I'm going to interrupt you real quick. It yep. cut out for like a really big section. So uh, okay. yeah, um, I like the last thing that I heard was that you were talking about how like there, you know, it could have just occurred. They've been separated for so long. And that was the last thing that I heard. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so another theory is that they, um, just had spots that were never selected against. So natural selection selects for things that are beneficial or gets rid of things that are bad. The spots maybe don't have an effect either way. So maybe they just exist. Um, but also there are theories that it might be easier to identify reproductively viable partners. So you don't have to go to someone to find out if they're able to reproduce with you. You can just 
see from afar that they have enough spots to indicate that they're a certain age. Um, so we don't really know why they have the spots. So the idea that there would be something selecting for a different pattern is um, not likely. Mm -hmm. um, so because they've been separated so long, we think it's probably just that. That totally makes sense. Um, so do you know if they have different like clicks and whistles? Because I know that's something that we see in other populations of animals. Yeah, so we actually don't know a whole lot about the spotted dolphin whistles. We have a colleague who's been kind of working on it and I won't say that she has confirmed that they have signature whistles, but she is able to listen to a recording and with pretty good accuracy tell you who it is. So there's something going on there. Um, but besides the potential for the dolphins to have their own unique whistles to the individual, um, they sound the same. So it's not, we haven't looked at it scientifically, rigorously, but anecdotally, they don't sound any different. Okay, good to know. Um, so how did you guys go about conducting this study? So our research all happens, um, obviously, in the field. We collect data from the boat for a little while, like the number of dolphins that are there and if they're what they're doing so we can figure out if it's safe for them and for us to get in the water with them. And if we decide that it is, we get in the water and collect video data that we can later use to ask any number of questions. And we use the same protocol to collect the data at all of our field sites. So the Dolphin Communication Project studies dolphins in Honduras and in captivity. So we're able to compare populations because we use the same protocol. Um, so for this study, we were using group composition. So who was in a group on a given survey day and our underwater video data to look at their behaviors and how they were interacting with each other. Interesting. Okay. Now I know I'm like playing the video in my head. I think the, I know the video you're talking about of that one woman. Cause I remember talking about it in one of my college classes. Um, and I remember it being like a topic of conversation on like collection of data. That's really interesting. So I've only ever collected data using photo ID, like from a boat and just getting the dorsal fins. Do you think the dolphins are at all affected by you guys being in the water or are they just kind of habituated to you at this point? I'm just curious as to how that plays a role in like the scientific process. Yeah, definitely. That's a really good question. Um, the dolphins that we study have been part of the wild dolphin swim with programs for decades. So Dr. Dzinski went down in 2001 to film that video that, or the movie I was talking about, um, which is called Dolphins with an exclamation point, if you're interested. Um, so she went to this island, Bimini in the Bahamas to study the dolphins and realized that there was this thriving eco-tour business where people go out and swim with them. So the dolphins are already habituated to people. So then it took a couple of years, but she was able to establish research there. Um, so we do see when you initially get in the water, the dolphins will stop what they're doing and they'll look at you. But generally they'll go back to what they were doing when we got in. So we don't get in the water if they're traveling, we can't keep up. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, if they're, it seems like they're, uh, sorting something out like socially sometimes we won't get in the water if they're foraging which 
doesn't happen a lot with the spotted dolphins, but we won't interrupt them. Um, and it's usually just the juveniles that will stay interested in the people, but mm -hmm. they'll like come do a little investigating and then they'll go back to what they were doing. And maybe like five minutes later, they'll come and see if you're still watching them and then they'll go back to what they were doing. So we are very confident that they are, that what we're recording is genuine. Like that's the actual interactions that they would be having, obviously at the surface in this particular area, not that they would behave this way everywhere in their range, but um, we were pretty confident about our methodology. Okay, good to know. Um, and when you guys like go down there, do you, I mean, I'm sure, cause I've done like um, different studies throughout college, like where we're looking at coral and we go down and we take like a little notepad and we track things. I'm guessing you guys just like have to hold the cameras the whole time or are you down there like, you know, collecting data at the same time? Um, so we actually run field courses with a few universities and when we have students we'll have them take notes on little tablets underwater um, mostly to help them learn how to collect data but it also you know to help us if we don't remember something but yeah when it's just us we have the video camera if we have interns or students we'll also give them still cameras so that we can get more pictures of everybody who's there because our methodology is focal follow. So when we get in the water, we just pick the first random dolphin and follow them until they swim out of view. So we're getting all of their interactions and their interaction partners, but we're not like switching between dolphins throughout the whole time. Um, and that's partly to be more like thorough because you're following one dolphin for longer, but also to avoid our preferences. So we are scientists, but we have our favorites. <laughs> If my favorite dolphin's in the group, I don't want to preferentially record him just because he's there. No. Um, so we just try to be as random as possible and follow them for as long as possible. Okay. So how long do you typically follow them for? Is it like 30 minutes? Is it like two hours? It really depends. <laughs> this is the really solid example of typical field work where it depends on the weather. It depends on the time of day. It depends on the people who are on the boat because sometimes we have tourists too. Mm -hmm. And if they're too like flaily or if they don't want to stay, then we won't stay. Um, so the least can be like a couple of minutes, but we don't use those for our analysis. For sure. So generally our follows are like a few minutes, but they have been hours also. Okay. Gotcha. Barely, but. Okay. Um, and so you said that you have tourists on the boat sometimes too. So is it like you go out with an eco tour boat or you just have people that want to see the research that you're doing? We go out on eco tour boats. Um, so we're kind of like the naturalists on board. Okay. Gotcha. Or people in the U S who maybe have gone on like a dolphin watch or whale watch. For sure. Um, we do also run a dolphin communication project eco tour where it's, we are kind of hosting the guests and that way throughout the entire day, we can give them talks and like, you know, go in more in depth about the dolphins, not just the time on the boat, but that only happens like once a year. So otherwise it's just ecotour guests who are already going on the boat and we are there to help them learn more about the dolphins and 
very kindly have gotten a free spot on the boat. Nice. Okay. That makes sense. So the ecotourism community is pretty like um, cohesive with researchers. Like you guys have a good relationship. Yep. There are just a few Mm -hmm. permitted ecotour companies that are Bahamian run. um, And they're all very well connected. Like they establish their own swim with dolphin protocol like they don't touch dolphins they don't feed them they don't play them sounds underwater they have all these rules that they established themselves so they're already pretty tightly knit so we are able to kind of benefit from that too so yeah it works out pretty well for sure um I do work on a whale watch boat as a naturalist in Monterey Bay and so I definitely always have an interest in learning about other types of ecotourism because I do feel that it is a fine line that we walk on being, you know, responsible operators and like, you know, in a place where we could harm the animals. So I would love to go over kind of what those safety protocols are just so that we don't have anyone that listens to this and is like, cool, I'm going to go jump in the water with a dolphin, you know, Um, what would, you know, what are safe ways to do that? Like, are there, you know, maybe specific species that you would or would not get in the ocean with? What are your thoughts on that? Well, firstly, you have to be conscious of what country you're in. So most countries have some kind of Marine Mammal Protection Act that requires permitting in order to swim with the dolphins or the marine mammals in general. Um, So that's the first thing is make sure that it's legal and you're doing it with permission. So our ecotour companies have permits. We have research permits that allow us to collect data. Um, Then the boat drivers are very conscious about not making abrupt movements. So they'll try to go in a straight line. If they're turning around, they'll do it very slowly, like a big gradual turn so that the dolphins aren't taken off guard and hit by the boat or a propeller. So they try to be predictable. Um, They don't go too fast, fast enough for the dolphins to bow ride sometimes, but not excessively fast. Um, And then just, be aware of what it is that they're doing. So like I said, there are other ecotour boats. Are they all out? Have they already been with this dolphin group? Would that maybe be stressing the dolphins out? So so sometimes we'll go out and like radio somebody and ask them how long they've been with them so that we know, is it okay? Have they not been there very long so we can stop and see them? Or should we just keep going and find other dolphins that haven't already had the stress of humans being there with them. Mm. Um, So then we also, we watch them for a little while before we get in the water to make sure that they're not doing something important. And if we determine that they're just kind of hanging out, playing, socializing, we get in the water really gently. So no uh, cannonballs or anything Mm -hmm. and don't touch them is Mm -hmm. the main thing. Um, And we don't do anything that might be considered training So we don't try to elicit a response from them. We just observe. We don't try to like interrupt whatever they're doing. We don't do any of that. We can't help that they would recognize our boat, like the sound of our boat underwater or that they would recognize us because they're smart. But aside from that, we don't like purposely teach them anything. For sure. Um, And are there certain distances that you're supposed to maintain from the animals? In the Bahamas, they don't have specific distances um and they only have the two species we have bottlenose dolphins and the atlantic spotted dolphins 
the bottlenose around the Bahamas, or specifically around Bimini, are pretty shy. So you'd be lucky if you were a normal person on a boat to even get in the water and see one, because they probably would have just swum away. Um, but it depends on where you are. So generally, around the world, bottlenose dolphins are probably the ones that are going to be more interested in people, more tolerant of it. Um, we just happen to be a little backwards, and it's the spotted that are okay with us. Okay, cool. Um, that's like it's very interesting. It's always interesting to talk about different parts of the world too, because like in the United States, it's very like hard no to like get in the water with animals. Um, and I definitely, you know, through social media and stuff, we see some of these encounters get like sensationalized and get done so irresponsibly. Um, so it's good to hear that there are places where it is like ethically done and that you said there's only a handful of tour boats. Um, so back to the study of, you know, us figuring out that these two groups, um, merged, tell us more about the results. Like, you know, is this like looking like a permanent merge? Is this something where they come together? And like, what does this mean for our understanding of dolphins in general? Definitely. So that's the exciting part of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was interested mostly in their social associations, like I said, so we had already, using an archive of data, established what their social structure looked like. And using the data, once we confirmed the IDs of all these dolphins, we were able to see if the social structure changed. So there was a little bit of a shift. The associations between Bimini dolphins got stronger after the arrival of the new dolphins, but they also had they formed really strong associations with the new dolphins. So that is really interesting. And the strongest associations between Bimini and White Sand Ridge dolphins that we found were between adult males, which is crazy because you'd think that males are competing over females. Why would they cooperate with strangers, especially? Um, and other populations have studied associations and they found that those strong associations develop over time. So they'll start when they're calves or juveniles and it takes them their whole lives to kind of establish the strong bond that they have once they're adults. This happened with adult dolphins. They were adults in 2013 and they formed strong bonds within the six years of our study. So that's crazy. We also saw pretty strong association between males and females. So female Bimini dolphins and male White Sand Ridge dolphins, which is interesting. It's not as surprising, um, but that's very cool. And then the other thing, we are able to look at their interactions underwater. So we saw both groups or dolphins from both groups initiating positive contact. So in dolphins, they use their pectoral fins a lot and it's kind of like grooming in primates where the more you do it, the stronger your bond because you're like investing in this relationship. So we saw a ton of pectoral fin contact. We saw body contact, just everything that's that you would consider peaceful. Sometimes they'll swim, like two adults will swim as though it's a mother and a calf, which is pretty vulnerable because the calf usually swims underneath the mom. So if you're an adult, your belly is so, you know, sensitive, delicate, you have to trust somebody to let them hang out there. Mm -hmm. um, so this is all wonderful but 
more surprising because what we see for intergroup encounters on land mm -hmm. is that they're almost always aggressive. Okay. And Dang. this specifically for primates, so like socially mm -hmm. complex species that are similar to dolphins, mm -hmm. they almost always are aggressive. And if they're not, it's because of some external factor. So chimpanzees are always aggressive unless there are no adult males or if it's like a group that has fragmented and there are fewer adults and they are able to join another group. Um, the only species that regularly does it as far as the literature goes is our bonobos. Mm -hmm. And they do have group mergers where they're tolerant. They don't see affiliative behavior, that friendly behavior doesn't happen as much but they don't see aggression either um okay. and those group fusions don't usually last a whole lot of time like it's a few days some of them last months but it's not usually like two groups that fuse permanently um and they do attribute that in bonobos to the fact that females are dominant so it's less uh, testosterone less aggressive mm -hmm. so um, and oh, so we do still see the spotted dolphins together. So I have to mention that we haven't had a research permit um, since COVID because the Bahamas has a new permitting portal and everyone's having trouble. So it's not just us, but we haven't been collecting data. So I can't say scientifically, but we have gone out on the boat as a naturalist without collecting data. And we've seen Bimini and White Sand Ridge dolphins in groups very regularly together. So this seems to be permanent, whether or not it's every individual from both groups that has stayed in the same place, we don't know, but it's mm -hmm. enough from both groups that um, we're confident that it's semi-permanent at least for the time being. Cool. Um, could you like do a like dorsal fin, like photo ID citizen science thing from the boat? Or do you guys need some sort of like permitting to do that? I think that we need permits to have the photos and use them for research, gotcha. even if they're not taken by us. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Cause in the Monterey Bay, we have like a citizen science database called happy whale and like any person that's on a boat could submit photos. Um, so I don't know if you guys could do something like that, that would be interesting to see if it's still like all the dolphins together. Um, yeah, I am, um, it's possible. I don't wanna say that it's not possible because of this new permitting system and everything. We just don't know like what the rules are. So that is something that maybe we'll consider this year. For sure, that's really cool. So what is that, you know, what does this mean if these two like dolphin species come together? Is this like, you know, like obviously there's gonna be like genetic changes. Like what does it mean for the ecosystem as a whole? Cause obviously animals all play a role in their ecosystem. What will it look like for their new space? And also, do you know, like, are they hanging out primarily like in the spot of one population or are they going back and forth between where the two populations have lived? Yeah, so uh, different groups, not different species, just to, Thank you. Okay. Um, that is a good question. So the area where we have been studying the dolphins around Bimini is part of the Great Bahama Bank. So it's a really big shallow bank 
the place where the White Sand Ridge Dolphins came is also a shallow bank, but it's a lot smaller. And it's, like I said, it's past that really deep channel where they'd have to, you know, worry about sharks and weather and all that stuff. Um, so we don't think that they're regularly going between Bimini and White Sand Ridge, but they are likely using a lot more of the, the bank around Bimini than where we go look for them. Okay. Gotcha. So, but we do have a question about that. So our population that we've been studying, we think it's around 120 mm -hmm. like resident dolphins that are there all the time. So when 50 new dolphins come, we don't know if that means that this area is so big and it's so close to the Gulf Stream where they can go feed. There's not really a limiting resource in that sense. Is there anything else that's limiting the size of the population in the area where the Bimini dolphins have been? We're not really sure. So we still need to keep working to figure out if the arrival of 50 dolphins meant that 50 of the Bimini dolphins left or if it's kind of just kind of like settled so that everybody can be there. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, I know, cause this podcast has focused a lot on orcas. There's always been like the discussion around like why the resident and transient whales like never come together. And it seems like there's this like kind of like unspoken like we just don't interact. Um, but it's interesting to see, you know how that would play out if like other dolphins came in or out. Well, that'll, that'll be interesting to see. Hopefully you guys can get some permits and we can answer some of those questions. Yeah, be great. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, one of the questions I always ask people is what can we learn from the whales? But in this case, what can we learn from the dolphins? Um, we can learn to be friendly and nice to strangers. <laughs> That's really cute. Yeah. Um, awesome. Is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know? Uh, I guess just how cool this is. This in the literature was only discussed once before our paper, and it was not like a long-term merger. So obviously we don't know that this hasn't happened somewhere else before, but that's okay. <laughs> But what has been recorded by scientists, this is the first time we've seen this. Mm -hmm. And it goes against everything that we would expect, given how dolphins socialize and how similar they are to primates. Um, it's very unusual. It's bonobos and humans are the only primates really that will merge peacefully. And it's very cool that dolphins do it too. Yeah, that is very cool. Um, amazing. Well, we will definitely look out for more research that you publish in the next couple of years and hopefully get some of these questions answered. Um, but thank you for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Alrighty guys. Uh, you all have a great week and tune in next week. Bye.